Hope your Christmas uh, week celebrations went well. It's a special time to be with family and be enjoying, uh, just celebrating all that we have in Christ, all that he has accomplished for us. So praise God for this time. Uh, Well, I want to open up God's word uh, with you. And this morning we're going to look to 1 Peter. So if you want to turn there, 1 Peter chapter 2 is going to be our text. Verses 9 to 12. Let me pray for our time as you're turning there. Let's just ask God to to bless uh, these next few minutes. Father, we just come into your presence um, in the name of Jesus, in all that we have in him and all that he has done for us and through us. We don't come in our own righteousness, but we stand in his. And we approach you, Lord, um, just asking that you would continue to do the work that you've begun in us. We pray that you would open our hearts to hear all that you have to say to us this morning. Just help these truths from your word. Help what is on your heart to become dear to our heart. I pray that you would just give us just a longing and a desire to um, to put into practice all that we're going to hear this morning, to, to make it uh, be the reality of, of our lives, not just individually, but here at Cornerstone, as we continue to grow, as we continue to journey forward. Father, just, just be pleased to show up in these next few moments. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would just illumine uh, your truth. Just be with me. Help me to be clear. Help us to all receive what you have for us today. And we pray all this again in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, let me read First uh, Peter chapter 2, verses 9 to 12 with you. It says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now... You are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul and keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Amen. Well, this morning, uh, we're continuing our uh, this winter seminar, and the theme has been towards the place of God's provision. And uh, often in, the, in, the, in the, the last few messages, we've looked to Israel as an example and kind of gleaned some things as we've seen Israel journeying towards the promised land, making some connections and analogies in our journey as a church, as the people of God. And we're going to do that this morning. And uh, the, kind of the theme to open up with and just to wrap your mind around is just this idea of uh, the the most important questions of life. And I think we've all asked these at different times. I think the, the, the world around us asks these kinds of questions, even when we're little. It's, it's, it, it doesn't take long for, for our kids to start asking why, why, why. And some of that's to be annoying, but some of that's also because there's a genuine curiosity of why do we do what we do Who are we? Why are we here? What are we supposed to be doing? These are the kinds of questions that that we ask and that it's I think is good to ask. Who are we? That's a question of identity. 
who are we? And then why are we here or what are we supposed to be doing is a question of purpose or calling. And the world defines their identity and their calling. Um, they, they, they don't really look to someone to give that to them. A lot of people, most people uh, in the world kind of doing their own thing. They, they seek within themselves their identity. They try to find out who they are. And then they live out of that. They live and they create with it, uh, for themselves a purpose uh, and a calling. Even as, uh, as believers, we can often do this or uh, get kind of sucked into this way of living. We can begin to uh, find our identity inside of ourselves instead of from God. And then we can kind of run with that and begin to pursue the things that are our quote-unquote calling. But Peter here, and God through Peter, is giving us today our calling And he's giving us, before that, our identity. God has revealed that to us. And so as believers, we don't need to discover that uh, in ourselves. We receive that from God, from outside of ourselves. God is the one who makes us who we are. He gives us an identity as believers. And then he, with that identity, calls us to a a purpose. There is a purpose for why we're here. In fact, that's the, the question I think we should all be asking. Why is it that we are here right now, living, breathing, sitting in this room? And the reason that Peter's going to give us this morning is that for the greatest calling that we all have as believers, and that is to make much of God, to make him known, to make disciples, people who would follow him and find in God their identity and their purpose. That's our greatest calling. That's why we're on this earth, to make much of God, to declare or proclaim his excellencies, as Peter says in verse 9. So Peter is giving us this morning our identity so that we might fulfill our calling. If you want to give a title to the message, it's fulfilling our calling. We want to accomplish what it is that God has given us to do. And there are many callings that we might consider that we have um, a lot of people look to their vocation what they do or where they live or the people that they've been called to that's part of our calling but every other calling fits underneath of the greatest calling and that is to make god known all of those other callings can come and go they can change they can morph one day you could be this and then you're not any longer but what is true of us on this side of eternity is that we are called to one thing primarily one thing only and that is to make much of God. And this was the same calling of Israel. In fact, through this series, again, we've been looking at Israel, and Peter looks at Israel. In fact, he's a very close connection to what he's telling us and what has actually been spoken to Israel in the past. In fact, the very language of verse 9, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Those are all phrases. Those are all identity that, that Israel had. That God spoke to Israel. So God made Israel his children, his priests, his holy nation, his special people. And he gave them their identity that they might be a blessing to all the earth. And we share in that that calling. And God brought them to Egypt. He he brought them to the promised land. And that would be the place that that would would inhabit Israel. So that from there they could shine as lights throughout the, the inhabited world. But on the way, interestingly, on the way to the promised land, God stopped them at Mount Sinai. And at Mount Sinai, he revealed to them, he he told them again, reminded them of who they were so that when they got to the promised land, they would not forget who they were and why they were going there. And I think it's fitting for us as we continue to journey, as we continue to move forward as a church, that we be reminded of these big questions. Who are we and what are we supposed to be doing? 
And Peter answers this for us. And this morning we're going to look at four keys from Peter that are vital. Four keys that are essential or vital for us to fulfill our calling. We need to know who we are. We need to avoid certain things. And we need to live out who we are if we're going to fulfill the calling that God's given us to make him known, to make disciples. Uh, on the back of, uh, in, in, the, in the bulletin, you'll, you'll, you have a, um, some notes and there's a graphic. We'll, we'll look at that a little bit through the term. So I encourage you to pull that out if you have it. I sometimes appreciate graphical ways of making sense of things. This is a chart that will kind of help us navigate through the passage uh, as well. So um, the first key that Peter gives us, Peter wants us to understand who we are in order that we might understand what it is that we're to be doing. And he begins this whole thing in verse 9. And what we, need to, what we need to do is we need to realize who we are. If we're going to fulfill the calling of making God known, we, it starts with realizing who we are. We need to realize who we are. Notice verse 9. He says, but you are. Notice what Peter says. He says, you are this, that you may do this. And this is, this is pretty interesting. Peter, Peter's been, throughout the whole letter, he has been communicating um, who we are. In fact, the but at the beginning of verse 9 is contrasting who we are with people who don't know Christ. Peter says that those who do not embrace Christ, who is the cornerstone, they stumble upon the rock that is Jesus, and they are dashed against him. Their life leads to ruin. But, he says, for you who have been saved by God's grace and know Jesus Christ... He says, in God and through Christ, you now have a new identity and a new purpose. And we find them here in verse 9. Peter has been mentioning to his readers throughout the letter who they are. In verse 1, he says, you're chosen ones. You are chosen or elect exiles. In verses 3 through 13, he talks about that the fact that they're born again. You are born again people. In verse 14 to 25, he says, you're the children of God. God is your father now. And you're to be like him. You are children. And in, ver- in chapter 2, verses 2 to 5, Peter calls us newborn infants. And he likens us to living stones. He says Christ is the cornerstone and you are living stones being built up into this spiritual house where you're offering the sacrifices of your lives in worship to God. And then in verse 9 now, he begins to unpack who we are. Notice a couple things before we get into the actual terms, the four things, that, the descriptions of who we are. And our identity. Number one, our identity precedes our calling. Notice the passage. You are so that you may. Our identity always precedes our calling. And not only that, but it determines and enables our calling. We have been made by God all that we are in this verse, in verse 9, so that we might do that which God is calling us to do. And that's why it's so important that we wrap our minds around who we actually are because it's from that that we'll then understand and be enabled to do what God is calling us to do. The other thing to notice is that our identity is found in who we are and not what we do. Peter makes a distinction. He says, you are this so that you might do this. Who you are is what you are. It's not what you do. I think, again, often we, we find our identity in terms of our vocation or what we do. But Peter says here, you are, you are this. This is your identity, who you are. And out of that, then you do all that I'm calling you to do. So let's look at, the, at how Peter is describing us so that we can realize that, we can embrace who we are, we can understand our identity. Again, we're receiving our identity from God and not kind of discovering it or making it up for ourselves. 
Peter says, first of all, we are a chosen race, a chosen race. And that word race is kind of misleading. It's not my preferred word. The the, the term is henos. It means that which comes from a common ancestry. And so we often see it translated in the New Testament as offspring or descendant. But I like the actual translation of family. Because that's what we are. We are a family. We, we see early on in the, in the letter that we've been born again. And by being born again, we've been born of God, born from above. God is now our father and we are all now brothers and sisters. So even though we've all come from biological families and we have relationships outside of the church, now as believers, we've been brought into this entity, which is a family. We now are family. That, this, that identifies who we are. That is our identity. We are family. But not just any family. We are a special family. We are a chosen family. He says you are a chosen family. And that word chosen means elect. It means that you've been, that you've been selected out of all the peoples of the world to be a part of God's family. We're, we're a chosen family. Not only are we a chosen family, but we are a transformed or a changed family those who have been born again have been transformed those who have been elected and chosen have been changed and have been given the holy spirit and have become like jesus in fact at the very beginning of the epistle it says that we've been elected according to the foreknowledge of god by the sanctification of the spirit for obedience to jesus and the sprinkling of his blood that means that we're sprinkled with him with his holiness with his perfection we become like him We move toward him to live for him and to become like him. So we're a changed family and we've been enabled, we've been empowered by our new birth into this family to be a family that actually loves one another, that lives life together and loves one another. So when we think of the church, and notice it's interesting that not any of these descriptions actually that the word church is described, but that's what's being described, the people of God, the church of God. We are a family. We're not primarily an institution. We're not primarily a nonprofit organization. We're not primarily a social group. We are by identity, by very nature, we are family. And that's the way we're to regard ourselves. That's the way we're to understand ourselves. And, and what we're called to do is we're called to live as family, loving one another, living together in love and in, in, in care for one another. And we're actually to call other people who are not yet part of the family to become a part of God's family. So we're a chosen race. Number two, we're a royal priesthood. We are priests belonging to King Jesus. We comprise a priesthood. So not only are we family, but we are a priesthood. That's our identity. We are priests of King Jesus. And notice that we're royal. We're a royal priesthood. We're not just any priesthood. In the day of Israel, as it was true then as it is now, that there are priests of all sorts of things. There's people who lead people into the worship uh, of, of other gods and they serve other gods and they intercede on behalf of people for other things um, but we are priests of jesus we are priests of king jesus and so we are priests of the royal one the, the true king of kings and notice that just like we are all part of the family we are all priests I think one of the deadly mistakes that so many people in the church make is that they distinguish between the professionals and the lay. That's just such a bad word in my mind. The lay people. And so unless you went to seminary, unless you know the Bible real well, unless you're paid for to do ministry or this or that, you're really not a priest. And although that may have been true of Israel, I don't know if it started that way. There's, I guess, some debate. You know, it, it, Israel's called a kingdom of priests in Exodus 19 at the mountain, just like we are here. 
And there's some thought that maybe all of them were priests at the beginning, but then when there was disobedience in the camp regarding the golden calf, it was the, the tribe of Levi that came forward in obedience to Christ or to, to God. And so they were given the right to be priests. But here in the church, in this day and age, in our dispensation, we are all priests. We are all ministers. We all serve. And in fact, we have all been enabled to serve. Just like we've been enabled as a family to love, we've been enabled as priests to serve and to minister. The Holy Spirit has given every one of you who are in Christ a gift. He indwells you and he empowers you to serve. And so you are servants. You are ministers. We are all ministers. Not only that, but we're a holy nation. The third, the third thing that, that, that is part of our identity. We're a holy nation. We comprise a kingdom, a nation. And it is that the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. We, we are all citizens of a country, and I'm assuming most of us are citizens of the United States of America. But th- there's an interesting that ha- thing that happens when we become believers. Uh, in fact, uh, a while back, some, the co- one of the co-founders, I think, of Facebook uh, had, had cashed out a lot of his shares when they went public, and he didn't want to pay the taxes on it, so he actually renounced his U.S. citizenship, and I think he moved to some Southeast Asian country to avoid paying all the taxes. And he was really uh, hammered for that, that he would give up his citizenship uh, to our great nation over not, you know, not, not wanting to pay the taxes. But that's what he did. And that's what people have to do sometimes. When you move to another country, you give up your citizenship uh, from the country that you came to become a citizen of another kingdom or another country. And that's what we've done in a sense. As we've come to faith in Jesus, we've become a part of his kingdom. We are now... Our identity is a part of his nation. We are part of a holy nation, a set-apart kingdom that is not of this world. And we live now as aliens, as resident aliens, as it were, in in our homelands. We are exiles and strangers. And that's the language that Peter uses to those, uh, his readers. We no longer have our primary citizenship here. We are citizens of heaven and of God's kingdom. And as such, what do, what do people do who are away from their homeland living in a foreign place? They serve as ambassadors of their country, of their homeland, of their nation. And that's what we are. We are citizens of a holy nation, live, living lives set apart and to be ambassadors, to point to the king and to point to the kingdom. Our, listen to this. Listen. We're not primarily tasked with changing our culture. We're not. Rather, we are through holy living, called to live set apart from the culture and actually point to a better culture, one that Jesus will bring when he comes back. We're to show people how amazing being citizens of the kingdom of heaven is and how wonderful and beautiful it is and how amazing our king is so that they'll actually want to give up putting their hope in our broken culture and make their home, their new home, in the kingdom, nation that is set apart, that is God's. That's our job as ambassadors, to put the king and the kingdom on display through lives that are lived set apart, holy for God. Lastly, we're a people for God's own possession. We are a people belonging to God. And this was, this was true of Israel as well. And with that comes two, two primary, primary concepts. One of privilege and blessing, to belong to God, to be God's treasured possession, to be loved and treasured by God. That comes with tremendous blessing. And we all experience that as people who are in Christ. We experience his love, his security, his fellowship, his approval, his, all his blessings. And ultimately, we enjoy him. But with being owned and belonging to God comes responsibility as well. We no longer live for ourselves, but for him, Paul says, 
who died for us and was raised. We now live not for our own purposes, but for the purpose for which he's called us. And so this is what Peter says. He says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. This is who you are. This is your identity. You are family. You are ministers. You are ambassadors. You are a people. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You see, our divine purpose is that by being a chosen and changed family, living together and loving one another, by being priests of King Jesus, gifted and empowered by the Holy Spirit to serve and bless one another, by being a nation set apart as citizens of heaven, living as ambassadors, pointing to our king and our, our coming kingdom, by being a people belonging to God, treasured by him, blessed by him, it, it's by being all of those things that we would proclaim Peter says that we would announce, that we would declare, that we would make known, that we would broadcast and celebrate the greatness of our God, the greatness of all that he is and all that he's done for us. That's our purpose. And a failure to see who you are will, 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 will mean certain failure to fulfill this calling. If you think that the church is primarily a Sunday event that you come to, if you think it's primarily a group that you can kind of jump in and out of, and not a family that you've been brought into, that you're a vital member of, the people that, that, are, that your that brothers and sisters are, are called to be people that, you are, that love you and that you love. If, if you see yourself as, as not a priest, but just professional pastors are priests and they're the ministers. If you see uh, yourself not as a nation, but really just representing your own kingdom. And, and all you're here on earth to do is build up your own enterprise and your own name and your own glory and your own your own kingdom, if you really don't see yourself as a people owned by God, as a person owned by God, but rather see yourself as belonging to yourself, then you will never accomplish this. You'll, be, you'll have a different purpose, and it won't be this one, to make God famous, to make him known, to make disciples. And this was Israel's calling, and that's why God brought him to the mountain on the way to the promise. And he says, I've got to show you who you are so that when you get there, you'll, be, you'll live this way. And you'll shine as my light in a dark land. In the same way God's calling us, Peter's calling us this morning, to embrace, to realize who we are. Sadly, Israel committed uh, some fatal mistakes. Not only did they fail to remember who they were, but uh, they, they failed to remember who they had been. Israel failed to remember who they were before God. And we don't want to make that same mistake. In fact, that's what Peter gets at as the next key to fulfilling our calling. Um, if um, so, and you can pull out the chart. In fact, um, this is this is it's again a little bit hard to see on the screen. I don't know if you can see it very well. Well, yeah, I guess you can. Um, the key to to fulfilling our calling is to know who we are and then to live that out. That's how we stay on the path to fulfilling the calling with which God has given us and our purpose. What Israel did is it veered to the left and to the right at moments in its history, and we're going to look at those in the next two points. Um, it veered to the left in separating itself from the culture and thinking it was better than the culture. And then at moments, it became no different than the culture and it embraced the culture and just became just like it. In both cases, we lose our witness. Whether we distance ourselves through self-righteousness or we become just like the culture, we cannot accomplish the calling. It's only by knowing who we are, realizing who we are, and then living that out that we can do all that God's calling us to do. Notice verse 10 with me. 
And this is the second key. Not only do we need to realize who we are, we need to remember who we were. We need to remember who we were. Notice verse 10. Once you were not a people, and I've underlined, sorry, there you go. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Peter reminds his fellow believers of what they once were. He says, once you were. You see, remembering is very critical to fulfilling our calling. Peter wants us to realize that all that we are, all that we have received. Notice, you were and you have received, or you had not received. The receiving and the being, all that we have, all that we are, is from God. And we can begin to go down this dangerous road if we begin to forget who we were. Forgetting who we were leads us to then beginning uh, to, to kind of believing a lie and to begin to think that actually our identity is found in who we are. And now as believers who can do some good things, we begin to think that who we are is because of us and instead of, uh, of what God has done in us. This believing a lie leads to a self-righteousness, a pride, wherein we begin to think that we're better than other people. We begin to look at the culture around us and, 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 and we act shocked and, and, and we act disgusted at the things that are around us as if we were some kind of alien community that was planted here on earth by God and never came from, from a sinful background or, or struggled at all. We, it, it leads to a judgmentalism and an elitism. We start becoming very, very critical, even to the point of even hating unbelievers and just being annoyed by their presence. And that leads to the ultimate thing, and that's that we begin to distance ourselves from the culture. We reject sinners, unbelievers altogether, and we kind of, what we do is we seek over time to just circle the wagons. We kind of embrace this hell is going to, you know, or the earth is going to hell in the handbasket kind of mentality. And we just give up on the world. And we, we distance ourselves from the very people that we're here for. We're here for only one reason, and that's to reach these people. And that's the very people that we distance ourselves from. And so that's where it leads us away from our calling. And this was true of Israel. By the time Jesus came on the scene, and not just during this time, but other moments in their history, but certainly when Jesus was on this earth, uh, this is what was occurring. The, the religious leaders of the time, the, the, the zealous Jews of Jesus' day, they had forgotten who they were. They had forgotten that they used to be a people who were idol worshippers, who were pagans, just like all other Gentiles. They forgot that at one time they were God-rejecting people and that God had done all that he had done in them and, and made them all that they were and all that they had. And so we don't want to fall into that. And there's a way to get back on the path, and that is to remember who we were. In fact, Paul, throughout Scripture, in fact, if you do a search of you were, you were, you'll find several passages that... that in, in very vivid detail, explain to us, remind us of who we were. And I think Ephesians is a great place to go. He says, and you were, Ephesians 2.1, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just like the rest of all mankind. Paul goes on to say in verse 12, Remember that you were, you were 
at that time, separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants and the promises, having no hope and without God in the world. This is who we used to be. This is who we are apart from Christ. This is who we were. And it's so vital that we remember who we were. We have to daily be reminding ourselves of where we've come from so that we don't develop this mentality that somehow we are better, somehow we're more righteous, somehow we're not like the people that we engage with on a daily basis. We want to stay on a path that leads us towards fulfilling our calling. And, and, and as we do that, as we remember who we are, then we begin to believe that our identity is found in only what God has done. That everything we have, everything we are is from him. We didn't contribute one single thing to that. And that then causes a spirit of humility. And you can see this on the chart. We, we, we become humble, not only before God, we become humble and grateful people, but even before others, other fellow sinners, we remain humble. And we, when we look at other people, we, think no, that we're, we don't think that we're any better than them. We, we see ourselves in them when we, we realize that we're just like them. It leads to a gracious spirit where we begin to be gracious instead of judgmental when it comes to the unbeliever. When we're engaging, we, we, can, we can actually begin to engage the, the vilest, the grossest um, sinners in our culture knowing that, that we, we're like them and we can be then gracious to them instead of judgmental. And that leads us to actually moving toward them instead of distancing ourselves from them. We can actually move and engage them and love them and be with them and spend time with them and do good to them. That's the, 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 that's the road to get back on the path towards fulfilling our calling. And that's what we want to do. So we're, we're just as capable as Israel in making the mistake of forgetting who we were. And we want to avoid that. Uh, but there's another fatal mistake that Israel made in her history and that is um, that, that prevented her basically from fulfilling her calling. Um, just as deadly as it was in, forgetting, in her forgetting who she was, uh, it's just as deadly th- that she forgot who she, who she is. And that's what we don't want to do. We don't want to forget who we are. Um, and we don't also want to forget, I mean, we also don't want to keep living who we were. Notice uh, verse 11, the next key. We need... So we need to not only remember who we were, but we no longer need to live that way. We need to avoid living that way. And this is in verse 11. Uh, Peter says, I urge you, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. In this verse, Peter is pleading with us to no longer live like we were. So he starts, he says, look, in order to fulfill your calling, to stay on that path towards fulfilling your purpose, you need to know who you are. You need to realize who you are. You don't want to make the same mistake that Israel made, and you don't want to forget who you used to be. So you want to remember who you were. So you need to know who you are. You need to remember who you were, but you need to also no longer live like that or according to who you were. Peter's calling us to abstain from the living that, from living the way that we used to be. Um, and he's pointing to our flesh as the main obstacle. It's actually the flesh that, that embodies or represents all that we were, all that we are apart from Christ. And the Bible has some things to say about the flesh. It says, For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. So prior to Christ, we were enslaved to our flesh. Sin was our master. We were enslaved to do all that our flesh desired and craved. But now Paul says that those who belong to Christ, 
Galatians 5.24, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So we no longer have to obey the flesh. There is that part of us that no longer is how we identify ourselves. We are no longer identified with our flesh. Even though it's in us, even though it's that part of us that's, that's dying and that will be done away with soon, it's no longer what defines us. It's no longer what identifies us. It's no longer what controls us. And so, even though it's still possible to sin and we can give in to sin, Peter's saying, you don't have to and you, you ought to abstain Put, keep sin and keep the desires, these sinful desires that are inside of your flesh that are no longer who you really are. Keep them away from you. And we, we begin to give in to the desires of the flesh when we forget who we are. We forget who we are. And that, that begins to feed into this, this series of lies. We begin to believe that our flesh is actually greater than it really is in, in a several ways. Number one, we begin to believe that the desires of our flesh and the flesh itself is actually better than the desires that God has for us. So we can be duped into a lie as we forget who we are, as we forget all that we've tasted, all that we have in God, all of that, we, that we've experienced through Christ. We can forget that and then we can begin to believe a lie that what our flesh is enticing us with, the desires that are inside of us, that they're actually better than the desires that God through his spirit has for us. We can also believe the lie that these desires represent the true us. As we kind of forget or look away from it or aren't reminding ourselves of who we are, we can, be, we can actually begin to believe that who we really are is what, what is our flesh. And that's no longer what identifies us. That's no longer who we are. We can also believe a lie that these desires cannot be overcome, that they're greater, not in terms of better, but in more power that they're more powerful than us, that we, we don't have what it takes, even with the, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, that we don't have what it takes to fight the flesh. And so that leads to giving in to the flesh, which leads to sin and all the consequences of sin. And as we immerse ourselves in sin and as we build patterns of sin, as we harbor sin, as we coddle sin, as we live lives where we continue to engage with particular sins, then we end up looking no different than the culture around us. And that's what Israel did. Sadly, this is what happened for much of her history. Though, though she had been chosen by God, made, made his children, his priests, his nation, his people, she, she gave in to the sinful desires of her own heart. And she pursued her sin instead of her God. And that's what we can do. And as a result, she lost her influence. She lost her witness. There's no way that we can fulfill the calling of God to make him known, to make him look great when we look just like the rest of the world and we're not living set apart different lives. But there is hope. There's a way back onto the path in order to live who we are. And it starts with the heart. Notice, notice Peter. He says, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, as those of, who are changed, who are no longer like the culture. This is not your home. So you don't need to live like the people here. He says, I, I, I exhort you, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. And he brings us inside of ourselves. What Peter does is he shows us that the real problem it isn't a culture war. It's not changing the culture as if we can blame the culture or the devil. Out of all of those enemies, the greatest enemy is ourselves. It's our own flesh. It's that which we need to keep crucifying and put to death. And he says, the real battle is inside of you. And that's where you need to start. And it's the same when we try to engage the unbeliever. We're not trying to change the culture. We're not trying to change the unbeliever with laws or with behavior modification. We're trying to change the believer from within. That by God's grace, we could be an instrument of bringing true transformation in the person's heart. 
that then leads to a changed life. So it starts in the heart, and here's what we need to do. We need to, instead of forgetting who we are, we need to remember who we are. And we need to believe the truth that, that actually God's desires, His will, His commands for us, all that He has for us, everything that He's given us, all that He is, is so much better than anything that our flesh is putting before us, even in those moments where there's intense, intense temptation. And then we need to, instead of giving in to our flesh, we need to be led and walk by the Spirit. So we're indwelt with the Spirit, and we need to believe the reality that if we walk by the Spirit, then as Galatians 5.16 says, we will not carry out or we will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. So there's a way out. There's a way that we can actually live different. And as we do that, we, we then, instead of sinning, we actually obey Christ and we become in our life, in our deeds, in our actions, in our conduct, more and more like our Savior. We become more and more conformed to what Jesus looks like. And that then enables us to look very different than the culture. Not because we've distanced ourselves from them, but because we live differently, because we're transformed and changed people who God is, in whom God's doing a work and we look different. And that looking different is what's going to enable people to see the beauty of Christ in us so that they can come to know him and that we can make him known. So this is what Israel did. On one side, they, they forgot who they were and they became self-righteous. They lost their witness there. On the other side, they forgot who they, who they are. And, and they then kind of caved in and became just like the culture around them. And that's what Peter's saying we ought not do. The only way then to fulfill our calling is to come back to living out who we actually are. And that's the last point. That's what Peter ends on. He says, we need to live according to who we are. Notice the verse in verse 12. He says, keep your conduct honorable among the Gentiles so that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Even when they're speaking evil against you that they might see the good that you're doing. And then when God visits them in his mercy, they might glorify him as people who themselves have been changed. We need to live according to who we are in order to accomplish this. Peter here is not so much giving us the what of our calling. He's giving us actually the how to do it. In verse 9, he told us what the calling was. It's to make God known, to make the excellencies of him known to people. We do this primarily by what we see in verse 12. And verse 12 is kind of like a paradigm verse. For the rest of the letter, what Peter's going to do is he's going to say, you do this in every area of life. In, in the next few verses, he deals with society. He says, you're going to live beautiful lives. You're going to do good in society. You're also going to do it in the workplace. So with regard to the government, with regard to masters, and even in your own home, with regard to your spouses, if they're unbelieving, you're going to do this. And so what Peter's calling us to in this verse, he's saying, I want you to live beautiful lives and do good. We see this where he says, keep your conduct honorable. And your translation may say honorable, it may say excellent, but the word is beautiful. He says, keep your conduct beautiful among the Gentiles so that they may see through that beauty the good that you're doing and then glorify God. So we're to live beautiful lives, relentlessly doing good to those around us. That's what Peter is saying, that we, we need to live such beautiful, attractive, praiseworthy, commendable, admirable lives that people see that and they see in us the beauty of Christ. 
So we are to be a beautiful family. That's who we are, right? We're a family. We need to be a beautiful family, loving other people, inviting them into becoming a part of this family. We're to be a beautiful priesthood of ministers, beautifully serving people selflessly and sacrificially with our lives. We're to be a beautiful nation of kingdom citizens and ambassadors who are beautifully pointing through our set-apart, beautiful, holy living, pointing to a better home, a better kingdom. And we're to be beautiful people of God, displaying the beauty of the one to whom we belong. It's through that beauty and the the relentless doing of good that Peter says people will see. This is a powerful apologetic in Peter's mind. Uh, Most of us, when we think about apologetics, we immediately go to arguments for unbelief. or We think about vast Bible knowledge. And I'm not saying those things aren't important. People need to hear the gospel in order to come to faith. There's a place for arguments. There's a place for knowledge. But Peter says one of the most powerful apologetics, the vehicle through which those arguments, those reasons, that knowledge, that truth actually comes and is delivered to unbelievers is through beautiful living and relentlessly doing good to them. If you don't have that, you really don't have much to say. And people aren't really going to hear anything. So this is a powerful apologetic. And so Peter says live beautiful, live beautiful, doing good, relentlessly doing good, so that they may see. But he's also calling us to live among the culture. Notice, he says, keep your conduct honorable among the Gentiles so that they can actually see it. They need to see it. You need to be so close to them that they can actually observe and see your life. And so Peter's not calling us to live apart from the culture. He's not calling us to live like the culture. He's calling us to live among the culture, and so close to the culture that they can see how we live and the beauty of Christ in us. It's, again, not a call to redeem the culture so much as to put on display the beauty of Christ and really to redeem people. Many, many people think we're going to redeem and change our culture. I don't, I don't know if that's going to happen. What I do know is that what our primary call is is to redeem people, to, by God's grace, be used to transform people's hearts so that they come to faith. And if enough people come to faith, then great, hopefully the culture is better off for it. But our primary calling is to redeem people and to live among the culture for that purpose. It's a call to be seen by unbelievers in every area of our lives every day. So when we think about even Sunday morning, we're here for a couple hours. There may be some unbelievers here in this room right now who are observing us, but they're not really seeing a ton. It's going to be in... Our workplace, it's going to be at school, it's going to be in, when, we at, when we're at the gym, it's going to be in all these different places that people are going to see us living beautiful lives and doing good toward them. In fact, again, like I told you, in the epistle, Peter just begins to take sections of society and, 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 the, and the different spheres of life and he says, do good. Do good when the government isn't beautiful and, and is persecuting you. Do good in your workplace as a slave and as a servant when your master is less than beautiful. Do good In your home, when you have an unbelieving husband, it's not your words that are going to convert him, it's your good deeds and your faithful testimony that's going to be used by God in a powerful way. So we're called to be seen by unbelievers. They need to see our life so that they can then experience the beauty of Christ and and we can make him known to them and by, by his grace and his grace alone when he visits them, if he visits them that they can experience the salvation. Notice that this is also a call to live beautiful and do good in the midst of persecution and suffering. The whole book of Peter is talking about, and Peter came from a time where, where it, it was very hard to be a Christian. There was antagonism towards Christianity and the gospel. 
Um, and I think that's where we're headed as a culture. I think we're, we're largely moving out of the Christendom and the Christianity and the privileged position that the church has had over our time. And more and more, Christianity is going to be one voice among many, and it's going to be a minority voice more and more. And our views are going to be strange, just like it says here, that when they speak of you against you as evildoers, they're not speaking as evildoers, they're speaking of you as evildoers. They're saying that what you believe is ridiculous. We're getting to that point now, where our views on homosexuality, our views on this or that, are actually evil in the eyes of the unbelievers. So we're seen as the evildoers, even though we're seeking to be beautiful, even though we're seeking to do good. He says, Peter says, get ready to live among a culture that's, that's not going to be beautiful back to you and do good back to you. You're going to have to do good. Here's the, here's the challenge. Here's where the rubber meets the road. You have to engage the culture. You have to be beautiful and do good when people are doing evil against you and calling you evildoers and reviling you and persecuting you and causing suffering. But this is actually something that we shouldn't fight against. We shouldn't be fearful of. We should actually embrace this because I think it's with increasing antagonism toward Christianity and the gospel that actually people will see more and more of the beauty of Christ in us as we follow Christ who was reviled and didn't revile in return. And as we, as we follow him and his example of doing good to people who, who hate us and as we bless people and, and are beautiful toward them even though they think we're crazy, that, that, that through that more and more opportunities for the gospel would, would, provide, would, um, would prove themselves. So this in- increasing antagonism, this increasing change in our culture is actually something that we shouldn't be fearful of. We should embrace it. We should boldly go into the culture. And, and when we can make changes, that's great. When we can affect changes, when we can have our voice heard in the culture, great. But largely, we're not here to change it. We're here to redeem people. And we're here to do good, to live beautifully in such a way that they see Christ. They see God, we make God known to them and the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. This is Peter's challenge to us. He says, you need to realize who you are. You need to remember who you were. Never forget that or else you'll head off on a path of self-righteousness and distance yourself from unbelievers. He says, you, you need to no longer live the way you were because that's not you. You need to remember who you were, who you are. And you need to ultimately live out of who you are. Live beautiful. Live as that family, as that nation, as that priest, as that people of God. And the hope is that God will use us in a mighty way, that this will be such a powerful apologetic for his existence, for his greatness, that people will come to faith as they see us living in this way. Let's pray and ask God for his help. Lord, this is... uh, This is easier said than done. And as we think about our culture, as we think about how rapidly it's changing, um, we're aware that that more and more changes are coming. More and more Christianity is not going to be um, accepted, embraced, given a privileged position at the table. We're going to continually face a culture that hates the message, hates the messenger, hates... What we're, what we're all about. But Lord, help us. Help us to remember who we are. Help us to realize that we're here for a purpose. We don't need to be surprised at the culture. We don't need to hate it back. What we need to do is love people, do good to them, be beautiful in their, in their presence. Bless them, live among them, being humble, 
being holy, living out of all that we are in you, in Christ. Lord, help us to do this so that you would be glorified. That's what we want, that at the end, people would glorify you, that they would see you in us, that when they look at us, they would see something different, not because of who we are, but because of what you have made us, and because of you in us. Lord, we just pray that that you would help us do this individually and as a body. That as we go forward, as we continue down our journey as a church, that we would be this kind of people. Lord, I pray for anyone who's here right now, who when they hear about this, they hear this kind of identity, they, they see who people in Christ are, they see that, that they say, that's not me, that, that's, I don't, I'm, 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 I've sought to make my own identity. I pray for anyone here this morning, Lord, who does not know you, that they would come to see you, that you would reveal yourself, show them your glory, show them how great you are, show them all that they can be in you, make this their identity, call, this, call them to this glorious purpose, to make much of you, Lord. Just pray for all of us who do know you, that you would just empower us to this end. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.